Hi everyone, it's Bud. Occasionally in this job, you get to interview your friends. Not often, and you probably shouldn't make a habit of it, but from time to time, and it's fun. There is understandably the usual schmoozing between friends and the gentle back-and-forth ribbing, or not-so-gentle, but you also find out things and hear stories, important, poignant stories, that you've never heard before. That's the story with this episode. This is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success. Jeremy Schapp has known a lot of success, primarily as a correspondent and host for ESPN, where he has worked since 1994. He hosts both E60 and Outside the Lines, ESPN's showcase journalism shows. He's covered every big sporting event you can cover and won numerous journalism awards. One of note, the Robert F. Kennedy Award for reporting on human rights and social justice issues for a story he did on the plight of migrant laborers in Qatar, building the infrastructure for the 2022 World Cup. When I first met Jeremy in 1992, we were both working at the then new 24-hour cable news channel in New York, New York One. He was really smart, worked really hard, and had a great sense of story. And you knew it was only a matter of time. And we became friends. So now, some ribbing among friends, and then the stories about the years before the cheering started. Before we get to uh, any stories you want to tell at my expense, which I'm, I'm happy to hear, uh, Jeremy, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Where's the, where's the preamble? I was, I was waiting for the big introduction and... Do you like record that later? Is that what goes on? Uh, we'll do. Yeah, we'll do that in post. Just, uh, just write me. Just, just write me. Uh, I'll write something concise. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah, anything under an hour and a half would be good. Okay. <laughs> it's tough for me, but I'll yeah. try. I'll do my best, bud. Um, shall we get it out of the way? The story of the first time we shared a car ride together, and what a. Uh, a powerful experience that was for you and how that really affected the rest of your career? I, I would love to if I could remember it. Uh, <laughs> I remember many things about working with the great Bud Mishkin 30 years ago. It was very specifically about a, a ride up to Nick's practice, and I was I, uh, I decided to pour my heart out to you oh, about my yeah. romantic life. Yeah. And, you were incredibly uh, couldn't care less if Perturbed. I remember correctly. <laughs> like, like, why is this guy telling me about his love life? I've known him for six minutes. You know, yeah, we can well, at least have lunch together at some deli and purchase before you know we get to this. This is about four, that's about four minutes more than most people I talk to about it. So <laughs> I, I was a captive audience, bud. <laughs> so. So let's start there. Wait, no, let's start point. with a trip to Chicago where you abandoned me. Let's not start with that. <laughs> you Please, abandoned me. I did. Playoffs, 1993. Because you were, you were ill and I had another idea for uh, how had, to spend the night in you Chicago. Had some, you had something better to do. Yeah. Understood. Journalistically, of course. Journalistically. Yeah. Go on. At that point... Yeah. All right. Those you're a couple of years out of school, but it's a couple uh -huh. of years before ESPN. Right. Do you do you kind of have in mind here's how I see things, how things are going to go or is at that point is it kind of like I'm not sure if how it's going to go and 
Or is there any doubt at that point of like how you want things to work out? You mean in terms of my relationship with you or my career? No, we, we knew how that was going to go in terms of your career. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, this relationship with Bud, it's just started a few minutes ago. It seems to be <laughs> off on the wrong foot. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I wish I could say that I had something really specific, but I guess it was more specific than most. I mean, I knew I wanted to be, you know, in um, TV journalism um, I, you know, I, when I went, when we started working together at New York one, at that point I had, I'd been out of school for a year and I had worked in sports for that year. Um, but I was thinking I might want to work in news. I might want to work, um, uh, outside of the sports world, but I knew, you know, I wanted to be in TV. That's why I had, you know, applied for a job, why I had sought out a job at New York one. And I knew I wanted to do journalism. But it was actually kind of an evolution over the course of that time at New York One, working with you, working with Steve Cangelosi, where, you know, and maybe it's because, you know, um, local news is a great education, but it's, 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 um, it's tough. It wasn't, you know, it, that wasn't, um, that wasn't what I wanted. You know, it's a, it's a lot of crime. It's a lot of local politics. It's a lot of local meetings. And it was exciting. It was, it was a great experience, great learning experience. But you knew at the end of the night, if there wasn't something going on in news in the five boroughs, um, then I got to work in sports. And, you know, and, and I guess that opportunity to kind of mix and match both gave me a sense, you know, this is a world I know this is a world in which my father works. Um, uh, I had fun, you know, with the sports department. I wasn't right. assigned to the sports department. And that kind of put me uh, in the direction of, of sports rather than news. And, uh, and then, certain. you know, I, I knew I wanted to do storytelling and I wanted to, you know, I, I wouldn't have called it storytelling then. I don't think we use that term, but I wanted, I wanted to do what my dad did. It was pretty simple. Yeah, and at some point when you've covered uh, your third or fourth fire at midnight, oh, uh, kind of loses, kind of loses the glamour. Yeah, if there wasn't no. any glamour in the first place. No, you know, and it's 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 a privilege, right, to have one of those jobs, and it really was great. Um, you know, doing it in New York and having you know essentially a pass, you know, literally a pass to get behind right. police and fire lines and and learn how to shoot a fire. Learn how to shoot. Uh, you know, one of the first things you learn how to do in local news, as you know, bud, is you learn how to shoot a perp walk. You know, I, I don't think I knew what a perp walk was. You know, right. It's a staple of local news. And there were big things going on in New York. And you're covering political campaigns. And you know, I remember, you know, going to a Rudy Giuliani event during the mayoral campaign in 1993. And, you know, our bosses, you know, said, and I, I was mostly a cameraman. You know, I, I wasn't really functioning in that job as a reporter. Mostly I went and I, you know, I shot events and you, you might ask a couple of questions. You were there, but I wasn't putting together my own pieces and stuff like that. But they said, you got to ask really Rudy Giuliani about this. And I asked him, and I have no idea what it was, but I remember he's like, I'll answer that when you ask your bosses about, blah, blah, you know, and it was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
okay, I, 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 <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea what they were talking about, but, you know, they told me I should ask this question. I, I remember the scene, you know, it was like a schoolhouse or a school building in Queens. And it was literally like, they just handed me, here's the question. This is what you ask. And I got this, you know, Rudy response. And uh, I don't remember what it's about, but there were exciting moments like that. So this may seem crazy, but is there anything from that experience, which was what, about a year or a year and a half, something like 17 that? 17 months, two days, okay. four hours. I, I, knew, I, I knew you'd have the exact. Is there, is there, I mean, it sounds crazy as someone who has been a, a global correspondent for so many years now and covering Olympics and covering international stories. Is there any lesson learned from that brief experience that still pertains today? So many, so many, but, you know, and, and honestly, you know, one of the biggest lessons, I'm not just saying this, is working with someone like you, working with you and seeing how you did it and how you approached it and the seriousness with you, with which you approach journalism and covering sports and asking questions. And of course, you know, after, uh, you know, you expanded way beyond sports uh, after I left New York One. And so those experience working around people who really you know, um, good at what they did. And also it's just about the reps, right? You got to be doing it to get better. It's part of right. a continuum. You know, this business, there is the performative aspect of it, you know, and although I was on camera exceptionally rarely, you know, at mm -hmm. New York one, it was kind of on your own time. You, you went to the camera room and you got a camera, you went out and you shot a story, then you came back and you edited it yourself and you popped it in the machine and you guys ran it. And that was a that was a great experience, and it also enabled me to put together a tape, you know, which uh, fortunately I don't know where it is now because I, I wouldn't want it to fall into anyone's hands. Actually, um, uh, <laughs> that'd be pretty good. Yeah, that would be pretty good. But you know, I mean, one of the things, but you might remember, but uh, one of the things I did get to do on camera in my time at New York One was interview Bob Knight. You might remember Bob Knight the head coach of the Indiana University Hoosiers men's basketball team. Yes. And I, a few years later, not that many years later, I would do an interview that was seen by more people on ESPN yes. after he got fired. But that first interview was much more nerve wracking in some ways. Well, maybe not more nerve wracking. I shouldn't say that. That's an exaggeration. But, you know, it got very testy. Uh, and at one point he started walking away and pulling his mic off, which he did not do in the second interview. Uh, on ESPN seven years later. But, you know, it, it, it's all part of the process of learning and getting better and getting more comfortable. That's really unbelievable to think that, you know, and that's one of the moments, and you've had many, uh, you know, really marquee moments in your career is the Bob Knight interview. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But the notion that there's only seven years in between that and you interviewing him Probably working your own camera that day when you interviewed him at no, no Kevin, Ga Kevin Garrity shot. Kevin Garrity nice. shot, and okay. it was on like one of the. Uh, I remember the one of the uh, not balcony. That's not right. It kind of like at the Marriott yeah, Marquis, like an overhang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An overhang yeah. at the Marriott Marquis. And and Kevin oh, okay. was kind enough to you know shoot that day for me because I had lined up this interview with Bob, who was a friend of my father's. Right. So you grow up around the world of sports. And, and other worlds too. And these people are coming into your home. 
because of your father's work. Is there a notion during those years of, yeah, sure, they're just showing up and of course they show up. That's that's right. the world we live in. Or is there some notion of, you know, this doesn't happen to everybody? No, I mean, I think it's both those things, right? Like it was, it was uh, my experience because my father, you know, was this prominent figure in the you know, in the New York and, and beyond in the national sports scene, obviously. And he had these great relationships with so many, if not all of the most important figures in the world of sports and beyond sports in that era. So, you know, there was this exposure to that at the highest level. But, you know, I understood that, you know, my friends didn't have that experiences. And, <laughs> and yet, you know, most kids didn't have those experiences. Uh, I knew it was special, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I think it did, I mean, it would have to, right, you know, um, have the effect of making you unawed by these people, you know, while, you know, because you're accustomed to it. Maybe I, I did have, you know, the advantage in a sense of not being awed by famous people, right. great athletes. Big stars, that kind of stuff. Like, you know, when, when your dad hangs out with Muhammad Ali and Will Chamberlain and Bobby Fischer and um, we could go on, Joe Namath, Tom Seaver, all these guys who were not, not, not casual but close to him. Um, yeah, that, that helps because, uh, you know, you, um, you're comfortable around. Uh, what kind of uh, copy boy were you at the New York Times? The How best. would you rate your? Oh, the best. Okay. I was great. You, I was you, great. You, you can you can take some time to think about it. If no, you like. no, no. I I don't have no. I was. Uh, I, How I, old were you? So I I was I spent two summers. You know, I call myself a copy boy. I guess technically you were in like the summer internship program. I don't know what the official name of the program was, but I did that two summers. The summers after my freshman and sophomore years. Uh, in high in school, college, college, oh, in college. Okay, yeah. So I that, thought you were younger. No, I'm sorry. I was I was a late bloomer, but it was it was I was. <laughs> what do you want from me? I, I got it. So no, I mean it's it's a great it's a great program, and I was one of the interns in the sports department. Um, there were like two summer interns, as I recall. I don't remember the exact numbers. And then there were remember then there were guys who were a few years older who were in like the permanent writing internship program guys like Ian O'Connor and Jack Curry um John Jack Taylor I think was in that program as well um Vinny Malazzi David Raskin you know a lot of guys in the media and so you know um I did that for two summers it was great you know mostly you're answering phones and you you know you're a copy boy you're running down at the composing room you're running up you're getting the uh the stuff that comes out of the pneumatic tubes in the back of the department uh, it's the strangest thing though. It's the strangest phenomenon. Did you ever work anywhere where they had pneumatic tubes? Think about the world. Now, I'm not that I'm aware of. I'm not like 170. I'm 53. But, you know, back then, you know, to get stuff from one floor to the next, when you couldn't attach documents, there was no such thing as a PDF or anything like that. You know, they put them in these pneumatic tubes that ran throughout the building at 229 West 43rd Street. And and it's it's the strangest thing because after maybe it's a few weeks, whatever it is, that noise is so loud when you hear it plop down in the basket. But until then, it's like it's not happening. 
it's it's like this response that builds and it's like oh you know and then you jump and you run i i was um i was enthusiastic you know i truly yeah. was as a copy boy because my father that's what he told me to be you know i remember before i went to work the first day you know he said and this was what he always would say he say um you get to work before your boss and you leave after your boss they want you to carry typewriters and it was still typewriters. I mean, those selectrics were heavy. Like those, you know, up and down the stairs, you carry those typewriters up and down the stairs. You know, it's, it was like, you know, he thought it was Paris Island and, um, <laughs> which it was not all the Times Square in 1988, uh, was different. It's all, it's and, all the terminology. That's right. And, and I remember once, you know, you know, as you ask you know, the, the copy kids to do to go get a cup of coffee. I was running down 43rd street, getting a cup of coffee for whomever. And Ira Burko, our friend, Ira Burko, the great New York times sports columnist sees me uh, running, you know, and I'm not fast, but I'm doing my best. And um, uh, he says, Jeremy, what are you doing? Why are you running down 43rd street? Like a maniac. I said, they asked me to get them cup, a cup of coffee. He's like, you don't have to run to do that. I'm like, but my dad, <laughs> that's how, that's how I approached it. So wait, you, you, and at that moment, it's like, wait, I can be in the business and not run to get coffee. This, right. is, this, this, is, this, is, the, this is the business for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen, as have many, the uh, footage of you interviewing Pete Rose as a young oh. child. Yes. You're a young child, not Pete Rose. Let me clarify there. Um, and and no doubt you've seen it too. Do you actually remember it or do you think you just remember it because you've seen the video? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what the distinction is. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember that trip. So this was a trip that my father and I took to spring training in 1978. And he was doing, you know, reporting for WNBC in New York and NBC uh, News, the network. Right. And, you know, he took me along and I was uh, I was a, a kid obsessed with baseball, um, totally consumed by it. I annoyed the crap out of him talking about baseball history all the time. He figured this might be, I don't know, the antidote taking me to spring training. And, and then he, you know, he had the brilliant idea of, you know, basically his stories were spring training so easy to cover. Even an eight year old could do it. So he had me do some interviews and uh, Pete Rose was my uh, you know, first victim. It seemed to turn out okay. It was fun. It was fun. And Pete's the kind of guy, you know, in terms of, look, I don't, I don't want to talk about Pete now. Right. That's an entirely different story. And I, he, he could I, appreciate I, it. I, he could I, have fun with it. Well, he was, he was great that way with the media, you know, the back and forth, having fun. And he had this relationship with my dad. Um, you know, I've interviewed Pete many times over the years subsequently. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sad, the story, um, but he has only himself to blame. So you go off to Cornell. Is there any doubt that this is the path you want to take when you get to Cornell and you start working on the Cornell student newspaper? No, no. This is the only thing I felt that I was capable of doing in life. And I'm only slightly exaggerating. Like I, honestly, that's, one of the things I'm so fortunate that I've had this, this direction, um, you know, for so long through exposure to it. 
And um, was there ever any notion of a plan B? Of a, a hey, I might try this if this doesn't work out. Not that I can think of. <laughs> I can think that's. I think especially after I got twelve credits of C minus in Russian language as a freshman, that probably diminished my chances of getting time into out, law time school. Time out. Time out. Time out. I'm taking a twenty to a full here. Yeah. I'm sorry. Take it. We've known each other a thousand years. You know that I, or maybe you don't. Know. That I studied in Russia and I am no, learning I, for the I, first. I know very well. I've heard you sing I, in Russian, the, the whole thing, you know. Uh, and now I'm finding out for the first time that you got C minuses in Russian at Cornell? I probably told you. You probably weren't paying attention. You know, yeah. You know. Okay. Um, so, so what happened you may, was. Go ahead. There's a language requirement. Um, and you can satisfy it like doing four, three courses over, you know, three semesters, or you could do seven classes a week over two semesters. And so I said, let's just get it out of the way. And on the first day, I'll never forget this, the professor, this eminent professor of Russian language said, look, here's the deal. If you go to class every day, you go to your section every day. The section was five days a week, the lecture two days a week. I don't know why I remember this 35 years later. It's ridiculous. I guarantee you no worse than a C minus. And in my warped freshman mind, I said to myself, deal. (laughs) 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 And and from that point, I don't know if he was trying to motivate, but it had the opposite effect on me. And um, it's hard to climb out of a 12 credits, a C minus hole in terms of your overall GPA. But no, my focus was always on the school paper. Look, my dad... Yeah, I don't know if he was just looking to save a few bucks or whatever. He said, like, are you sure you really want to go to college? Like, you could get a job at a newspaper now with your clips and my connections and just start. I mean, that's what you're going to be learning. That's what he did at Cornell. He did all his learning at the Cornell student newspaper, the Cornell Daily Sun. And it was the exact same experience for me. Uh, I, and I'm not, I'm not saying I'm proud of it because I had an opportunity to study from some of the best professors in the world and to really take my studies more seriously. And I was not as diligent as I should. But it's a, it's a thing. And I understand that. I know people who at, at my alma mater at Penn who Penn didn't have a journalism school, right. but they were, worked for the Daily Pennsylvanian and that was their major and they right. loved it. And many of them went into journalism. That's um, exactly, yeah. The experience. I understand, that, understand that you covered your stories with an, an, a level of seriousness uh, at the Cornell a newspaper. Uh, yes, you, you, there, we're going to go there. <laughs> well, no, I'm just curious if, if again, lessons learned from that period sure. that uh, that uh, came into effect later on when you're doing it professionally. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, look, that was the education. That was the point. You know, one thing I firmly believe, and I bet you would agree, Bud, is that. Um, so much of this is about reps and getting reps, you know, and it's different because, you know, it, it, and at a daily student newspaper covering sports, I was writing basically every day for four years and, and nobody's, nobody's great at it. Nobody's even good at it. You know, when they start, some people are better than others. Some people are worse than others. Some people might never get it, but you need those reps to get comfortable, to know what you're doing. I mean, dealing with coaches, dealing with athletes, dealing with 
you know, to the extent that I did school administrators and I, you know, I covered news and sports, all that. And there were big stories, you know, with people's lives at stake, even when you're in college talking about this, people's reputations, all that kind of stuff. And my experience at the Cornell Daily Sun, um, you know, I, I look at it, I look back at it extremely fondly. It was invaluable. Um, and, uh, it's, it's really, you know, the basis of, of, um, it's, it's the foundation of everything that I do. Would you tell me one story from those years, perhaps the story of going undercover <laughs> into bars in Ithaca, New York? That's how, I, that's how I, it's been a long time, but I'm sure I'm going to get the details wrong, but, but to give you a sense of just how eager I was to be popular. I decided first semester freshman year that my first, like my first big story, this was on the news side, you had to write like a big story to get your byline or whatever, you know, and, and mine was going to be uh, an expose on underage drinking in college town in Ithaca. And the, I don't believe that story's ever been written before. No, never been, never been written, never really been explored, kind of esoteric. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. and, and, <laughs> and so... You know, I do this story for a number of weeks, however long it was, where, you know, going into bars with fake IDs and seeing what works, where it worked, where it didn't, bouncers who are, you know, checking, who aren't. Again, I forget all the details, but it comes out uh, on like the weekend, uh, a parent's weekend, like when parents come up for freshman yeah. year and, uh, you know, it causes a big uproar. As I recall, there's a crackdown on underage drinking in Ithaca as a result of this story that I'm so proud of. You can imagine how popular I was. And not just, not just among, you know, the, the owners of these establishments, but with my fellow students, especially those under the age of 21. It's lonely at the top. <laughs> it was very lonely. I w you could not have, if I had tried to, you know, concoct a story, you know, or, or think of a story that um, would make me um, uh, un more unpopular with my fellow students, with the administration on that weekend, with, you know, local business owners. Um, yeah, that's probably number one. That's good. Another question that might seem odd, considering the totality of your career and the success and the awards and totality. the great stories that you've done, and that is maybe early on, uh, did you ever have to deal with the element of doubt? Did you ever have to deal with, am I going to be, am I going to be up to this? And I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm working for ESPN, obviously the power of ESPN, but is there any, are there moments where like, well, I, I still have a lot to learn. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, at every level, every step along the way, um, you know, for me, the the transition, I was a producer at ESPN for a couple of years before I became an on-air reporter. And I really had <clears throat> very little on-camera experience at that point. You know, I'd done maybe a couple dozen stories in New York One, but that had been a few years earlier. I had mm -hmm. done, I think, one such story on uh, one of the other uh, – shows at ESPN that existed at the time, Sports Night, I think it was called, which was like the Sports Center on ESPN2 back in the early days of ESPN2. But I was really going from having spent, you know, five years out of college off air to suddenly on the air every day at ESPN. 
every single day. And I was living in Dallas and I was doing stories about the Cowboys mostly. And I was doing stories about the Rangers. And I was um, doing stories about, you know, the, the Mavericks and the Stars. But I was also traveling all over the country, covering the NFL every weekend. And I'm learning on the job the uh, performative aspect of it. I mean, I had done the job for a few years on the producer side, alongside people who were doing what I was now doing. But it was tough. And I remember specifically, if you want a specific story, I love this one. So the 1996 playoffs, I've been on the air at ESPN for about five days. And I am now covering the Yankees-Rangers playoff series. And I don't remember which game it was. The Rangers always beat the Yankees in those series back in those days. This is the first, second year, 96, of divisional play. And um, John Burkett was the pitcher for the Rangers who was starting this game. He was a a lovely guy, 300 bowler. And um, I remember he beat the Yankees. And I don't remember what the score was, but he shut them out or something, whatever it was. And afterwards, I'm now going live, as I recall, you know, it's been a long time on Sports Center, like the, the big show, Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann. I think it was both of them. I definitely remember Dan. And they're throwing me on the field in Arlington. And I'm standing by with John Burkett. And I am petrified. Like I've, <laughs> I've done, you know, tape pieces and all that. But now, you know, and there are literally millions of people watching, right? And and I'm I don't even know at this point, where are my hands supposed to be? Do I have hands? Should they be in my pocket? Should they? And so I say to John Burkett, I'm not making this up, but I say, John, this is the first time I'm doing this, or words to that effect. I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I'm going to, when I ask you a question, please give me a long answer. <laughs> so I don't have to ask another question. And he says, because I'm thinking like, I can get the first one out, but I don't know if I'll be able to spit out the second question. Yeah, I'm not really thinking follow-up so much. And and he says, he looks at me like I'm crazy. And then he's like, sure. And I ask him one question. I'm like, you know, I think it's Dan throws it to me. And I'm like, yeah, we're here with, you know, John Burkett, who's just defeated the Yankees. I'm sure I didn't say it uh, that clearly. And, and I say, John, what was the key to your success? Whatever I say, right? And he talks. I mean, it's like a filibuster. It's like Mr. Smith goes to Washington and he's doing it for me. But now I've got to cut him off, as I recall. <laughs> At least, or maybe he finally wrapped up. But after two minutes, they're, I think they're yelling in my ear, rap, 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 you know? And I'm like, okay, John, thank you. Back to you guys. <laughs> That's, That's so a yeah. piece of cake. So doubt, piece- but, there was doubt. <laughs> there was plenty of doubt. Yeah, after that, you probably think, hey, it's a piece right. of cake. It's I asked guy one question. He goes, off. Yeah. yeah. No, that was and then, and, then, and then occasionally they answer with yes and no answers. Oh, that's all yeah. of a sudden. Yeah. Well, that's what I was afraid of. Right. Yeah. I was terrified of. <laughs> my, my, our view of John Burkett all of a sudden is just gone. Right. You know. I wonder where he is now. There are a few, you've done. Hundreds of stories, thousands of stories, and there are more than a few that we could talk about and be here for a while. So I'll just pick one. Okay. Uh, because I'm always fascinated by people who are in positions that most of us, be us in the business or not, will never, ever, ever, ever be in. And the Bobby Fisher story mm. has always been compelling to me. This is someone who your father knew, and then you, I'll set it up a little bit, you go to Iceland. And this is years later. Uh, 
from a forget about from a professional standpoint, what is it like to go through something like that personally? Well, it was um, in that moment, and, and you're talking about mostly this, you know, kind of confrontational moment in this press conference that he's having, and he's talking about my dad, and he's not saying the kindest things, and uh, you know, he's talking about the Jews this and the Jews that, and the U.S. this and the U.S. that, and you know, I'm. I can't say I'm struggling to maintain my composure because it's not occurring to me not to be composed, you know, but in that moment, you know, I'm definitely thinking to myself, like, you know, you're here to ask questions. You're here to get the story questions that people have wanted to ask Bobby Fisher for at that time, 30 years and had not had the opportunity to do so. And, and I, you know, I kept coming back to the questions. Why did you stop playing? Why did you not defend your championship? Why did you say these things, these horrible things after 9-11? But he keeps returning it to a personal level. And at a certain point, you know, I just, you know, knew, thinking to myself like, well, you, you can't take this anymore. You have to respond. And so I did. And I remember you know, that feeling where it's just like when your adrenaline's really high because mm -hmm. you're in the middle of this and it's, it's a, it was um, kind of a whole, the entire situation was disorienting, you know, because here I am uh, in Iceland, this island in the middle of the North Atlantic where I've never been before. And they're like, I don't know, a few dozen other reporters from around the world in this room I'm talking to this guy who's been this mysterious, complicated figure for so long. And he's talking about my dad, who at that point had been dead for about three years. And it was just, um, it was uh, strange. And, and, and even, you know, at the time, but afterwards, when I had a few minutes to think about it, I was thinking to myself, like, wow, that was, that was powerful. Mm -hmm. And it was strange. And it was unusual. And immediately I called when, when you know, um, after all that had happened, I called my boss, uh, Vince Doria, uh, and he immediately started thinking, well, you know, this changes the story. I mean, this story now, you know, the way to tell it really has to be about, you know, him and your father and what's happened here. And of course, I hadn't processed all that yet. And that's the story we ultimately ended up telling. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's it's probably, you know, I've thought about it. it was 17 years ago, but I think even the moment I understood, like, there aren't too many stories that you get in your career like that, you know, or too many moments. Right. On the other hand, this is something that you dreamed for a long time, uh, this career, mm. and you realize that dream. And so I'm curious if there is a moment or two, or maybe many, <laughs> where you're able, even in the hit, the midst of doing the work, where you're able to sit back and say, wow, it happened. I dreamed it, it happened, and here I am in fill in the blank talking to this person, and it happened. Yeah, no, I, I definitely had those moments where, you know, the way I think about it isn't like it happened, but, you know, 
And I remember you telling me this. This was 22 years ago. I, I remember this conversation after I interviewed Bob Knight after he got fired. And we, we were speaking and you said you were sitting where everybody wanted to be sitting across from Bob Knight, getting the opportunity to do that interview and being put in that position because I work at ESPN. And there have been many such moments over the years where I thought to myself, wow, you know, I'm here doing this interview, doing this story that, you know, the kind of interview, the kind of story, the kind of opportunity that I've always wanted. And, and I consider myself so fortunate to have had those opportunities and for ESPN to have put me in those positions over the years where I get to do it. If it's, you know, three years before the Bob Knight thing, um, a couple of years before, you know, the biggest thing I had done like that up till then was this live interview with Daryl Strawberry when he was diagnosed with cancer on the eve of the 1998 playoffs. And, you know, <clears throat> it's a live interview. And, you know, those are unusual. Sit down live interviews are extremely rare. And I'm mm -hmm. 29 years old and I'm interviewing Daryl about having been diagnosed with cancer, this the kind of iconic figure in sports, especially New York sports, especially in my world, you know, growing up in the city in the 80s, growing up in the metropolitan area in the 80s. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's live on ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News. There's a truck, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. And then, you know, it's on, you know, it's in all the newspapers, the coverage of the interview itself. And that, you know, that was before uh, the night thing. And then there've been other, you know, when, when, you know, you get those big gets, that's a moment when you think about those things too, whether it was Plexico Burris, you know, the first sit down he did after he was arrested, after shooting himself in the nightclub, Manti Teo, um, you know, those moments you think about, but it's also when I get to go around the world and do these stories about big issues in sports, societal issues that connect to sports. And there's nowhere else where I would have been able to do these things. Well, you've earned it. No, you've earned it. Kind. They don't, they don't uh, just, you know, just toss those out to be nice. You've earned. Uh, I thought it was because of my charm and good looks. You're telling me otherwise, but. I'm sorry. We seem to be having a technical problem here. I'm sorry. You said something about uh, charm. <laughs> charm. I'm charm. I flatter myself. Are we, are we talking about, are we talking about me now or are we talking about. Oh. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> and and this other thing, the good. I'm sorry, good what? I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. It was facetious. Facetious. So you did go to some classes at Cornell. Not many. Not many. I, I won't ask you. I won't. I won't go back to it. But basically, as a freshman, I remember you could basically to satisfy the science requirement, you could either take geology or astronomy. And I went on a fact finding mission, which was probably more. Uh, in depth than the classes would have been if I just attended them to find out which was easier. And I found out geology was easier. So I took geology, even though the astronomy freshman professor was Carl Sagan. If <laughs> 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 you could just take the class, I was like, no, no, geology is a little bit easier. I'm taking geology. Sorry. Bad sign when you ask Carl Sagan, what team does he play for? That's not <laughs> That's a good right. sign. That's right. Um, look, you can tell us. We won't Not tell Paul Sagan, else. our old boss, did, but they were related. Did you, did you actually think that geology was this the, the science of the stars and astronomy was the science of, of rocks? Or did you at least have that part down, Pat? I, I, I had that. 
that much. They had that? Okay. Barely. Very good. (laughs) And on that happy note. That's it. We barely got rolling. Oh, my God. Tell me another, another, like, I can't believe I'm in this position or wacky things that have happened on the job. I remember the cowboy years were kind of uh, oh, fun, those, if I remember those correctly. Were interesting. There was a lot going on. There was definitely a lot. Rumor has it there that's a team that gets covered a little bit. I understand. It does. Yeah. Uh, you know what? One thing, one of those moments really for me, you know, I probably the guy I've interviewed the most, um, the athlete that I've spent the most time around is Mike Tyson. And I remember, you know, his last big fight. He had a couple of fights after this, but his last big fight, and people thought he was going to be the heavyweight champion of the world again, was the Lennox Lewis fight in Tennessee in 2002. And I remember interviewing him a few minutes after it ended, after Lennox Lewis had knocked him out, demolished him. And being in you know that dressing room at that moment, asking him the questions about, you know, this is the end of the line, the end of the career, you know, um, that was one of those moments too. And, you know, I, I haven't... I've seen clips of that interview subsequently over the last 20 years, but I haven't seen the whole thing. That's a moment where I was like, I, I, I felt like uh, what you know my training had prepared me to do and ESPN putting me in position to do and giving me the reps and the opportunities, um, being in that moment, doing that kind of interview, um, I felt like I was where I was supposed to be. Always proud of you. Love you, my friend. Love you, bud. Jeremy Schaap. What ESPN viewers might not know is that Jeremy is also an accomplished writer. I highly recommend his books. Cinderella Man, James J. Braddock, Max Baer, and The Greatest Upset in Boxing History. And Triumph, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well no extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm excited about the upcoming episodes, including interviews with chef and writer Gabrielle Hamilton, writer Jane Green, baseball broadcaster Susan Waldman, musician John Linnell, one half of the band They Might Be Giants, and the wonderful actor and storyteller par excellence, Richard Kind. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.